I love these stories in the Old Testament, stories of 1 and 2 Samuel, stories of Genesis and Exodus and 1 and 2 Kings. I remember uh, even as a young boy, just my heart being drawn to these stories about who God is and how he relates to his people. In fact, uh, many of them were first communicated to me with little pieces of flannel and a green felt board. I know some of you have probably experienced God's stories told to you that way. And uh, today is going to be no different than the way uh, those stories are communicated to children and children's ministry, because again, they're all about how God relates to his people. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2, if you're not already there. In Israel at this time, as we know, there was no king. There was no king in Israel, but there were priests. There were priests, and Eli was the head priest. We've already uh, been introduced to him, and he had two sons that we're going to be introduced to shortly. Priests were from the tribe of Levi. They were from a specific clan in the tribe of Levi. In fact, if you recall, Aaron, the brother of Moses, was the first priest, along with his four sons. And the, the role of the priest was to lead people, the people of Israel, in worship of God, to help the people of Israel be reconciled to God, have a relationship with God, worship God correctly. Many times, or the most of the time, this was done through sacrifices. And because of the priest's role in the sacrificial system and, and their duties to, in the tabernacle and eventually the temple, they had no inheritance in the land. They didn't have land and farms and were able to raise crops like the rest of Israel were. And so they were supported by the people the the people's gifts and offerings and even sacrifices, they got a portion of those for their own livelihood. Now, the priesthood was very important, and God had high expectations for his priests and what they would do and how they would relate to the people. And yet, the priests weren't perfect. They weren't expected to be. They had their own sacrifices for their own sins to atone for as well. But we see in Scripture that Aaron and, and his sons um, both disobeyed, but, but his, two of his sons, when they, really right at the beginning, when they first started worshiping, when they first started offering sacrifices and things like that, uh, they deliberately disobeyed God and how they were to do that. And God struck them down dead. Because sometimes God gives out swift judgment, particularly in cases where he uh, wants to uphold his holiness and make it clear to others. At the same time, many times, most of the time, God is very slow in giving out judgment, as we will see today. And yet, because God is just, because he is righteous and holy, you can believe that he will execute judgment. He will not let the guilty go unpunished. Judgment will come. So let's go ahead and, and dig in here, verse 12. We're going to meet Eli's sons and see how they served the Lord as priests. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. At that, the fork, or sorry, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. 
Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. He and his, er, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Now there's a couple of things to note right off the top here. The author is uh, very clearly showing us that Eli's sons were wicked and they were abusing their power. They were in dereliction of duty. Apparently, they had taken after Aaron's sons in regard for, or I should say, disregard for the expectations of the priesthood. And it's also clear that uh, what's happening here in chapter 2 takes place over many, many years. We have this episode with Eli's sons, and then we get a little... Uh, aside to Samuel and his growth and development. And then we go back to Eli's sons, and then it comes back to Samuel faithfully serving and following the Lord. In the midst of that, we see that Samuel's mom and, and dad, but mom comes every year bringing him a new robe because he's grown and, uh, and just caring for him from afar. She gets, really gets to see her son once a year as he serves the Lord under Eli's direction. We also see that over this time, Eli becomes very old. So much time has passed, and the time passing is significant to what we're going to see coming up here in just a little bit. But before we get to that, let's go ahead and consider just how wicked Eli's sons are. First, we note that the text calls them worthless. Worthless. Now, that's a bad enough uh, terminology. I don't think any of us would like to be called worthless, but literally this phrase means sons of Belial, or in, in maybe English or modern day, we'd say sons of the devil. It's essentially what the text is calling them. They did not know the Lord. In other words, they did not fear God. So here are two men who are supposed to be close to God. They're supposed to be helping other people draw close to God. They're supposed to be leading the people in worship, and they don't even know the Lord, they're supposed to be directing people to worship. So can you imagine having that kind of pastor leading your church? 
he wouldn't be around very long, I can promise you that, or you wouldn't be around very long. But the people of Israel didn't have that option. They were kind of in a bind because the priesthood was the only way they could relate to God. And it wasn't an elected position. It's not something they could overthrow. It was an inherited position passed down from Aaron to his sons and their sons on down to Eli and his sons. And the people of Israel couldn't also just go over here and worship God the way they wanted to because then they would be just as guilty as Eli's sons of disregarding the way God called them to worship. And so they were kind of in a bind. They were in a difficult spot. Now, as priests, Eli's sons would have, um, have a right to certain cuts of the meat. As people brought their offerings to, uh, to the Lord, the priests would get certain cuts, like the breast of a, of a bird or the shoulder of a bull or a goat. But see, the problem with the sons of Eli is they wanted more. They wanted the better cuts. They wanted different cuts. They wanted more for themselves. And so they would go and take extra. That's what the taking more from the pot or demanding special cuts of meat from the individuals who were bringing it. And if they didn't get their way, they threatened violence in the process. To be like me coming over to your house on a nice summer day, opening your grill and taking a steak off your grill, and just walking off with it. And of course, if you object, I would threaten to stab you with the fork I used. Or if I come over to your house on a Monday and say, hey, you didn't, you didn't give enough in the offering yesterday. You need to contribute a little bit more to the Lord's work. That's essentially what they're doing, but it's worse because they're doing it with the very things that were meant to make people right with God. Now, to top it all off, they wanted the fat portions of the meat. That was something that God had explicitly stated when he was telling them how to offer sacrifices and what to do. The the, the fat portions were were to be burnt on the altar. It was God's portion, specifically for him. Now, I can relate to Eli's son's desires here, because I love me a good ribeye. But when it comes to the sacrifices of God... It was his and his alone. They were stealing, they were robbing God in that action. And so this happens continually, year after year after year. And from what we see later in this passage, it's something that Eli is actually probably benefiting from himself. Perhaps they learned it from their father. But to make matters worse, Eli's sons are also sleeping with the help. They were having sexual relations with multiple women who were not their wives, who were serving under their leadership while serving the Lord. The tent of meeting that is uh, is referenced here is the place that God was said to dwell among his people. God gave specific directions for how it should be built, how all of the, the, the worship of him should happen, and the tent of meeting was the place where he would meet with his people. And Eli's sons were treating it like a brothel. And so Eli's sons, not knowing the Lord, do whatever they want because they have the power to do so. Now, eventually when Eli is old, he's had enough. He's put up with it long enough. And you would think Eli would put an end to this wickedness, right? He's going he's to go to his sons and he's going to make them stop being wicked or he's going to remove them 
from their role. After all, Hannah showed up, and, and when she appeared drunk to Eli, she came down on hard on her. And Hannah even said to him, the perception, she felt the judgment of Eli. She said, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's the same language used of Eli's sons. Basically, she's saying, don't, don't regard your servant as a daughter of Belial, as a daughter of the devil. But that's exactly what Eli's sons are. And so Eli, if he's going to drop the hammer on Hannah for her drunkenness, certainly he's going to come down hard on his sons. But in the end, he simply gives them a good talking to. He warns them, but he really does nothing to stop them. Now, as judge of Israel, Eli could have, he had all the power and authority to remove his sons from their office. He was the only one who could do that. And if you read through the book of Judges, you know that the judges had no problem stabbing, slaughtering, burning, doing whatever was necessary to free God's people from a wicked grip. But Eli doesn't do much. In fact, he barely raises his voice. I remember getting in trouble for, in a far worse way for simply encouraging my sister to jump off the ladder of the bunk bed. And uh, we would have gotten away with it. It was no big deal, except her head hit the light fixture and glass went everywhere. And I can tell you, I got in a whole lot more trouble for that than Eli's sons did for hijacking a generation of worship in Israel. Verse 23 tells us, he confronts his sons. He even warns them that they've sinned against God. He, he pleads with them, who is there that can intercede for you? What are you going to do to make this right with God? Who's going to plead your case? So he says a lot of truth. He speaks good things to them. But despite his warning, Eli's problem is that he loves his sons more than he loves the Lord. Removing them from power would be difficult. After all, they were willing to beat someone up for a piece of meat. And I think Eli doesn't want to risk that. He doesn't want to risk the damage to himself or the relationship with his sons in order to do what's necessary. So his warning is all bark but no bite. Now contrast that with what we see happening with Hannah and Samuel. Samuel is growing with the Lord. He's faithful. He's just a young boy, but we see over and over that he's, he's gaining favor among men. He's gaining favor with God throughout the story. But then there's Hannah. Hannah asked God for one son. She just, she begged and pleaded, vindicate me, give me, just give me a son. I'll give him to you. He'll, he'll be in your service. God honors that request. She's true to her word. She gives him to the Lord. She continues to support his ministry before the Lord. And God heaps blessings on her for it. He, he opens the floodgates of blessing upon her. Not only does she get Samuel, but then later on, over the years, she's given three more sons and two more daughters. I'm reminded of Mark 10, where Jesus promises that if we follow him, he will multiply the things we give up for him to follow him, not only in this life, but especially in the life to come. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Peter's kind of doing the humble brag, right? Hey, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for the sake of my gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is a great plug for global missions here, right? Give up your land, go to another. But it's, it's true regardless of how we serve the Lord, whether here or there or anywhere. God says, give it up for the sake of his kingdom. Give it up for the sake of your joy and blessing in this life, but especially the age to come, eternal life. When God asks you to give up something for the sake of his kingdom, he's doing it because the benefits to you are greater both now and in the future than they ever would be if you just hung on tightly to those things. That's what we see playing out here with Hannah and Eli. Hannah honors God, and he opens the floodgates of blessing upon her. Not only does she get more children, but her son will bring about immense change and blessing on Israel. Eli refuses to discipline his wicked children, and he loses everything for himself and them and future generations in the process. Friends, if, if you hold on, to tight, hold on tight to things in this world, you're going you're gonna to find yourself grasping air someday. If you open your hand and give it to God, he's able to heap more blessing on you, and you're able to receive it. Now, Jesus' warning is distinct here. It, it comes with persecutions. It's, it's not the easy life following Jesus, okay? But it is the blessed life to give your life up for him, and he will heap all of that back on you. Think of the, just the, the brothers and sisters in Christ you have in this room alongside you serving the Lord together. A hundredfold, he promises. God told the Israelites he would bless them for their faithfulness and curse them for their disobedience. And we see that played out right here. We see that played out in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. We're going to see it, the conclusion of it here, as we read on in, in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out 
to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Our God is a very patient God. He could have struck down Eli's sons at any point in their sinfulness as he did Aaron's sons. He has the power and ability to do so. He has the right and authority to do so. I just praise him that that's not his normal mode of operation. That there would be no one left on earth if that was his normal mode of operation because who can stand before the Lord? Instead, God gives Eli a lifetime to depose his sons. He gives the sons years and years and years to turn things around. But then he sends a man of God to deliver a clear message of coming judgment. Essentially, he reiterates the privileges that Aaron's family, the descendants of Aaron, the priesthood, Eli and his sons benefit from. They were a privileged class. Many in Israel would have loved to have been a priest. I can imagine there's boys from all these different tribes of Israel who would have loved to have been a priest, but they couldn't because they were born into the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or Simeon and would never have a chance to serve at the Lord's altar. And the accusation is there in in verse 29. Here's, Here's why Eli in particular is going to face God's judgment. It says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling?" And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. God holds Eli complicit in the actions of his sons. He was responsible. It's likely he participated with them in it, perhaps even taught them how to take advantage of the sacrificial system. It seems like Eli himself benefited and clearly did nothing to stop them from their sin. But God holds off his judgment year after year after year, whole generation. But God doesn't hold off his judgment forever. He often sends warning when his judgment is coming, before it's too late. This time, he sends it as a promise that it's too late. In short, God is bringing Eli's family, their role in the priesthood to an end. They're they're no longer going to be able to serve as priests. Someone else will take up the cause. So there's not only consequences for Eli, there's not only consequences for Eli's sons, but all the generations that come after them will pay for their sin. They will be cursed with untimely deaths, die at young ages. Eventually, their role in the priesthood will be removed. We're actually going to see that take place in 2 Samuel as we conclude our series. 
In fact, Eli's sons will die here in just a couple chapters on the same day, fulfilling part of the prophecy, but confirming the rest. I want to direct our attention to verse 35 again. This is the crucial part of the prophecy, and it has huge ramifications for us. It also answers Eli's question that he asks his sons back in verse 25. The man of God says for the Lord, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This series is called No King But Jesus because there was no king among the people of Israel. And we're gonna see that they make multiple attempts to find the right king to lead the people and all of them are going to fail. That's the theme driving this book. We're going to see it a lot, but, but it's also true of the priesthood. There are, there are priests in Israel, but they're not true priests. They're not the right priests. They're not the, the priests that can bring about what the priesthood should bring about. Aaron and his sons didn't pan out. Eli and his sons bring shame on the holy role of priest. There's only one priest who can bring us to God. And that's Jesus. There is no true priest but Jesus. Here in the early years of Israel, we see God promising his people a priest who will serve faithfully in every way, a priest who will function in his role forever. Not only that, but Jesus is the solution to the challenge Eli gave his sons. He asked them, who's going to intercede for you? Who's going to plead your case before God? And through Jesus, we have a faithful high priest who will not fail like so many before him, but because he is our perfect priest, he is able to go before the throne of God and intercede on our behalf. Not only that, he himself is the sacrifice for our sins by which he makes intercession, by which he makes his appeal to the Lord. Here's how Hebrew tells it, Hebrews tells it. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the faithful high priest. He is always there. He will never rob you or cheat you. He will never abuse you or take advantage of you. Instead, he's the high priest who gave himself up for you. The priest of Samuel's day offered bulls and goats continually over and over again. Every time somebody sinned, another sacrifice, more blood, more atonement, more making right with God. But with Jesus, there's one sacrifice, his blood, one time because it's sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. Jesus' offering has eternal value. He wasn't a priest that claimed things that weren't his. He didn't demand things of us. Instead, he gave himself for us. A lasting sacrifice so that God's wrath could be appeased. I hope you see that in today's story. I hope you see the wrath of God here in this story. God was angry. He was angry that these men had taken advantage of their role, had 
led an entire generation of Israel astray in worship, misrepresenting him. Eli and his sons had abused and misled people. They'd been contemptuous toward the Lord and his offering. But God was patient with them. But he's not going to let it go. Judgment was coming. And that same wrath God had toward Eli's sons is the same wrath he has toward all sin. We all commit sins like Eli. We all commit sins like Eli's sons. We value things above God all the time. We misuse and abuse his creation, his created people. We don't worship him the way he deserves to be worshiped. But God is patient, he's gracious, he's merciful. And he made it possible that you don't have to face his wrath. In fact, he took that wrath upon himself. And you were spared from the wrath of God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And he's allowing all kinds of Eli's to have their day on, on earth. Right? There's all kinds of wickedness. There's all kinds of sin. And, and, and last week, Reba prayed, how long, Lord? How long are you going to let all of this wickedness and evil prevail? And it's, it's because God wants them to repent. He wants to give them time to turn to him. He could end them right now. He could end you and me right now. But he wants to give them a chance to turn to him because God is patient in delivering his judgment, allowing some harm to come to us, allowing harm to come to others, so that over time and through his graciousness and his mercy and as we come to faith and we help bring others to faith, many can receive his mercy instead of find themselves facing his wrath. Because any suffering in this life is temporary. It's short, doesn't seem like it in the moment, but, but it is compared to suffering for all eternity. One, one of the old ways of saying the patience of the Lord is the long suffering of the Lord. He puts up with our suffering patiently, putting up with sin on this earth as a mercy that's meant to lead us, to drive us to him, to embrace his saving grace. Now, Eli's sons didn't have that option. They were out of time. But you do. You can be spared from the wrath of God. And so can those around you. They can be spared from the wrath of God as well. God's not slow, he's patient. He's merciful. He's waiting for you to turn to him. Now, as we conclude today, I want to reiterate for you three significant applications for us from this passage. This is specifically for those of us who have embraced this truth, who have placed our faith in him. First, we need to take our own worship seriously. The New Testament tells us that those of us who are in Christ are a priesthood. We're just like Eli and his sons. We're, we're, we're more like Eli's sons. We're under the high priest, Jesus, worshiping at the altar of God. Scripture tells us that all of our lives are worship. All, I, all our lives are worship. Worship doesn't just take place when you walk through those doors on a Sunday morning. Worship happens wherever you go. It happens with you all the time because Scripture also tells us that your body is a temple of God. It's, it houses the Holy Spirit. 
And so wherever you go, you take the tent of meeting with you. And all you do is done in the presence of the Lord. Friends, this is, this is huge. It's easy to pick on Eli's sons. It's easy to point the finger at them and be like, how dare they do that? How dare they hold God's sacrifice in contempt? But I think if we examine our lives closely, we realize that we're more like them than we, maybe we first want to admit. Maybe we don't do the same things they do. Maybe it's just in simple things like how we treat our spouse or our kids or our coworkers. Maybe the way we think about them, what we do with our bodies, how we control our sexuality. Maybe it's in regard to other things we do with our bodies like our health. Do we honor God with our time? Basically, do you honor God with your life? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the threshold God requires of us, demands of us, asks of us. I've been very convicted recently about the time and energy I spend just on on leisure activities that have no eternal purpose. Now, God wants us to enjoy his creation. He gives us opportunities to enjoy life. But I have to ask myself, am I giving myself to leisure? Am I seeking leisure for leisure's sake rather than using leisure as a way to worship the Lord? Am I prioritizing my wants over God's? That's a question we should ask ourselves and wrestle with. And all of us are going to, we're going to get a different answer from the Lord because the things that pull my heart away from the Lord are different than the things that pull your heart away from the Lord. Secondly, in addition to taking worship seriously and worshiping with all of our lives, we need to make sure we don't worship our kids. And for that matter, don't worship any relationship. While Eli was complicit in some of his son's wickedness, the major judgment against him was that he permitted his son's wickedness. He allowed them to continue in it. He had the power, he had the responsibility to do something about it, and he chose not to. It seems like he was afraid of losing them. So church family, we need to discipline our kids. This is a verse I heard a lot growing up. My dad liked it in particular. Maybe it made him feel good when when he brought out the paddle, but it says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Now this doesn't mean you have to spank your kids. The rod is a symbol of discipline. In fact, Uh, if you've parented long, you know, some forms of discipline work on some kids and they don't on others. So you got to figure out what works to help your kid's heart be tender and sensitive to to obeying you, but more importantly, to obeying the Lord. But as a parent, if your kids are in the home, you have a responsibility to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So discipline your kids, but also disciple them. Eli's sons didn't know the Lord. Makes you wonder, why didn't they know the Lord? Their dad supposedly knew the Lord. He's a priest. Wasn't he supposed to teach them how to know the Lord? Why didn't they know the Lord? Eli bears some of the responsibility for that. Now, at the same time, you can't make your kids believe. You can't force them to embrace the truth of the gospel. But you can give them every opportunity to hear the gospel, and perhaps more importantly, You can show them what it looks like 
to have a relationship and know the Lord. Now, some of us don't worship our kids or, or we don't have kids, but there's plenty of other relationships that we're tempted to treat like Eli does with his sons. So we're, just, we're just afraid to speak the truth because we might harm the relationship. Dale Davis reminds us with Eli that silence in order not to offend is not always honoring to God. He says this prophecy against Eli emphasizes that you can end up in grave sin by thinking it very important to be nice to people. How easy it is to practice a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone, that equates niceness with love, and thereby ignores God's law and essentially despises his holiness. We do not necessarily seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. Now, we're called to speak the truth in love, right? Our our intent is never to harm or hurt. It's to expose truth to our hearts. But Eli wasn't willing to speak truth in any form, at least not until it was too late. Now, coaches have to speak hard truths to their athletes all the time. I, I had a coach who would ask us, Will you, if I tell you the truth, will you still be my friend? Because he knew he was going to have to tell us hard things. He was going to have to make corrections to how we were doing things. Maybe it was in our effort. Maybe it was our technique. And teenagers don't like to be corrected in any way. And so he asked us that question. Hey, can I correct you? Can I speak truth to you about your athleticism? And will you respect me for it? Will you still be my friend for it? Or are you going to let that divide us, and compromise what we're trying to accomplish, which is success on the sports field. He, was, he, he wanted to make sure that we knew that he was going to tell us something difficult, but it was out of love to help make us better. And so there are things that we must take a stand for, for the sake of our God, that may jeopardize relationships around us. They may make us unpopular in the office or the community, maybe even our own home. Perhaps we're communicating them currently in a way that's not gracious and full of love. Maybe we need to check our hearts on that. But I think a lot of us aren't communicating them at all because we're afraid of the outcome. We're afraid of rejection. I I had to have a conversation like this this week with a a fellow pastor. Uh, He's a pastor of another church, and we were meeting and just sharing ministry, trying to encourage each other. But it became apparent that there was something that I needed to make sure he knew where I stood on in terms of convictions. So different different denominational line and all that. So there's there's some differences in our beliefs. But I had to make sure he knew where I stood, and it was a hard conversation. And and depending on how he took it and how I communicated it, it could have ended very, very differently. Thankfully, In this situation, we're currently still friends. We'll see how that conversation continues in the days ahead. But we got to have those hard conversations. We have to take a stand on certain things. Otherwise, in silence, we can give approval to them. Finally, we need to not just not worship other people or relationships, but we also need to worship at the feet of Jesus. We just need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is the great priest who intercedes for us forever. 
But when we find ourselves out of line with God, we can go to him through Christ and find forgiveness and healing. We don't have to dwell in guilt or shame. We can cast our cares upon him. Hebrews tells us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus gets it. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to have people reject him over hard truths. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by those close to him. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by all his friends in the same moment. He's been through it all. And we're encouraged to draw near to him, to come to him, to sit at his feet before his throne. Jesus is the one true priest, but he's also the one true king, simultaneously at the same point. And he invites us to come and sit at his feet, to, to throw ourselves before his throne, his throne that's full of grace, so that he might give us mercy, so that, so that we might find help anytime we need it. Anytime we need it. And I wonder how many times we miss out on God's help because we simply don't go ask him for it. How many times we struggle through issues and and burden ourselves with burdens that God wants to carry for us. We just need to ask him to do it. How many times do we shy away like Eli, trusting our feelings, gritting it out, loving ourselves more? How many times do we pull back like Eli instead of throwing ourselves at his feet like Hannah does? And we all have sins, we all have our problems, we all have our burdens and challenges. And so in that, we need to take our worship seriously. We need to seriously consider how we're living our lives for the Lord because we're prone not to. We're prone to worship ourselves. We're prone to worship other things. And we need to remind ourselves that we need to worship the Lord. We need to be careful not to worship our relationships with others because it's so easy to do because they're right there and we care about them and we can deceive ourselves into thinking that those relationships aren't worth the confrontation. We need to worship at the feet of Jesus because sometimes that's all we can do. 